0: Eye of a hurricane is a strange phenomenon. Hurricane winds spin in a circle up to 180 miles per hour. My wife is from South Florida, and she's lived through a number of hurricanes. She recalls how her dad would pick the coconuts out of the trees and board up the windows. The family would huddle together as the storm unleashed its fury. But at the center, at the eye of the hurricane a strange phenomena occurred. The winds would die down and yield to an eerie calm. Kathy's father would open the doors and let the family out to experience the serenity. They had just braved a fierce storm, and soon they would be back in its teeth. But in the eye of the hurricane, there was a brief reprieve, a chance to lick their wounds and catch their breath. The eye was nature's intermission. And in a sense 1 Timothy was written in the eye of a hurricane. Paul had just experienced a frightening storm and unbeknownst to him he was headed back into its fury. But for the moment there was a calm. Paul had gone to Rome to be tried before Caesar Nero. He'd stood in the lion's mouth and had escaped. The emperor set him free, but his freedom was short-lived. For just two years later, in 65 A.D., Paul was arrested again, this time for the last time. A year later, Paul was beheaded, martyred for his faith in his Lord Jesus. At the moment of his writing this letter, a fierce storm was behind him. A fiercer storm was ahead of him, and Paul was in the backyard enjoying the calm. In the eye of the hurricane, he writes two letters. First Timothy and Titus, his second letter to Timothy is penned in the final fatal storm. Up until this point in your Bible, Paul's letters are to churches, but his next four letters are written to individuals. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon were church leaders or pastors. Thus we call these letters the pastoral epistles. They teach us the priorities of a pastor, how a leader should live his life And conduct his ministry. We could title this session Lessons for Leaders. Well, chapter one begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. The term apostle means ambassador. We'll talk about the apostolic office later, but the term refers to a man sent as a representative. And this colored all that Paul was and did and said. He was always conscious that he represented realities bigger than himself. That he stood for God, his Lord Jesus, the gospel, the church, God's grace. And he writes to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Reminds me of Billy, the pastor's six-year-old son. At church, Billy would always introduce himself... Billy Allen, Pastor Allen's son. Well, one night his mom sort of set him aside and suggested that he drop the Pastor Allen's son. Be his own man. Come on, Billy. Introduce yourself as just Billy Allen. Well, the next Sunday a visitor asked Billy his name. And following his mom's advice, he replied, I'm Billy Allen. The man replied, Billy Allen? Oh, you must be Pastor Allen's son. Billy answered, well, Dad says so, but my mom's not quite sure. <laughs> well, unlike Pastor Allen's wife, Paul had no qualms about advertising the father-son relationship he had with this young man, Timothy. According to Acts chapter 16, Timothy's natural father wasn't a believer in Jesus. And though his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were Christians and godly examples... A mom's influence only goes so far. Not long ago, I read a startling statistic. When a father is an active believer, 75% of the time, his kids become active believers. But when mom is the only active believer in the family, the odds decrease to 15%. I don't want to be negative toward moms. I'm just saying the father factor is crucial in a son or daughter's spiritual formation. And this is why Eunice jumped for joy when Paul took her son under his wing. Paul was a spiritual dad to Timothy. And Timothy became Paul's faithful friend and his troubleshooter as well. Timothy will put out fires in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Ephesus. He became a capable pastor. Well, Paul greets Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace From God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. When Paul writes to churches, he greets them, grace and peace. But when he writes to pastors, he adds mercy. And I can tell you firsthand, a pastor's job is harder. His responsibilities are greater. His judgment will be stricter. That means he really needs God's mercy. In Acts chapter 19, Paul started the church in Ephesus. It was a strong, healthy church. And when Paul moved to his next assignment, he turned its leadership over to Timothy. Here he writes to his protege, As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. And can you imagine filling the shoes of the apostle Paul? What a tough assignment. Pastoring in the wake of Paul would be like taking over for Bear Bryant. Or filling in for Billy Graham. And you'll notice Timothy was a bit timid. That's why Paul here urges him to stick with it, to stay at it. Timothy needed a holy nudge. You know, throughout this letter, Paul will follow a pattern. He will urge Timothy and then he'll praise God. In essence, he challenges Timothy to press on by getting him to look up. And the first thing Paul urges him to do is to remain. As the pastor of the same church for 39 years now, to my surprise, longevity has brought with it great rewards. In fact, I think in almost every venue in life, longevity is an underrated virtue. Whether it's a job or a marriage or a community or a church, you'll find that some blessings only come with longevity. They accrue when you remain. And then in verse 3, Paul urges Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Apparently, falsehoods and speculations were seeping into the church, and Timothy needed to resist them both. This is still the central job of any pastor. Falsehoods deny the truth. Speculations distract from the truth. They take people down irrelevant rabbit trails. Bible codes and 666 interpretations and conspiracy theories, fables and endless genealogies are just speculation. And they tend to divide rather than edify. Paul is telling Timothy, never let tabloid overshadow truth. Our focus should be on the scriptures. For Verse 5 tells us it's in result. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Christian truth produces love for God and love for others. Not arrogance, not fear, not elitism, not combativeness, but love. That's why every preaching point, if it doesn't increase my love for God and my love for others, if it doesn't accentuate love, it doesn't deserve my attention. It might be clever, might be curious, but if it doesn't cause me to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, then it doesn't merit my focus. Verse 6, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. There were legalists in Ephesus. And rather than preach God's grace, they forced the believers to jump through legalistic hoops. They had all kinds of rules and rituals and requirements that went far beyond the gospel's call for simple faith. Heard of hula hoops? Well, beware of holy hoops. You got to worship on a given day, or speak in tongues, or be baptized by our formula, or read from a specific Bible version, or vote for a particular political party, or educate your kids the way we do it, or eat or drink our way. Do this. Avoid that. Or you're a second-class Christian. Hey, the legalist says, follow our stipulations or you'll never know God's best. That's just not true. Faith is not about towing a line, it's about following Jesus. Recall verse 5. He said, the purpose of the commandment was love. And this was true of the Old Testament commandment, the Old Testament law. Its stories, its codes of conduct, its rituals, they were all about law. I'm sorry. They were all about love. The the law was all about love. I'll get it out sometime. The law taught us that God loves us enough to provide a sacrifice. Even the genealogies reveal a God who cares enough about His people to call each one by name. The law God gave to Moses was all about how to love God and how to love another. Verse 8, But we know that the law is good, If one uses it lawfully. And realize it's possible to use the Bible in unbiblical ways. You can use God's law unlawfully. Once a man fell on hard times. He turned to his Bible. He closed his eyes. He flipped through the pages. And he plopped his finger right down on the page. It read olive oil. He took it as a sign. He went out and invested in Texas oil wells. Earned millions of dollars. But soon his wells dried up. And so once more he turned to his Bible. He flipped through the pages. Put his finger down on the page. And it read, Paul was placed in the stocks. It was a sign. He invested in the stock market. Made a mint. It was amazing. He became a millionaire twice over. But not soon thereafter, the market crashed. A dramatic dive cost him his fortune. So once again, he opened his Bible. This time, his fingertip landed on chapter 11. (laughs) Hopefully, this last sign caused him to realize Bible roulette is not a reliable way to find God's will. Hey, twist it enough. Cut and paste. And a person can make the Bible say whatever they want. We need to interpret the Bible in its context. Use the law lawfully. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells Timothy to study the Bible so that he can rightly divide the word of truth. That should be our goal as well. Well, Paul com- comments on the correct use of the law in verse 9. He says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane. The person with rebellion in his heart is the one who needs boundaries for his hands. You need do's and don'ts if you lack the proper wants. But a Christian has been made a new creation in Christ. We've been given new desires. Thus, rather than be bound by the law, a believer in Jesus needs to be released to love. Remember, the law is like an x-ray. It shows the break in the bone but it can do nothing to fix that break. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We gain God's favor and forgiveness by faith in the cross and faith alone. Why live with the law looking over your shoulder when the Holy Spirit now fills your heart? People live far more godly lives when they're bathed in God's grace than when they're constantly flogged by the law. Paul says the law is not for the righteous, but for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. These are people full of hate, not love. The law is for fornicators, for sodomites. It's not love to use a person for sexual gratification with no regard for what's morally and spiritually best for them. The long arm of the law is for kidnappers. Love doesn't steal away another person's freedom and force them to comply against their will. And it's for liars and for perjurers. Love doesn't deceive or distort the truth. See, laws are necessary where people lack love. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And this is why the gospel arrives... When the gospel arrives, the law becomes irrelevant. For sound doctrine is what produces great love. And notice Paul calls it the glorious gospel. I like that. I'm sure that when he thought of the gospel, it brought a tear to his eye. In fact, he shares a bit of his testimony with Timothy. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, literally a bully, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul's words, I was formerly. What if you wrote a letter and you used those same words, what would follow? I was formerly a druggie or an adulterer or a drunk or a hothead or a pervert or a hypocrite. There's a line in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is told, You must know that forgetful green is the most dangerous place in these parts. Forgetful green. That's the grassy bluff where you relax where you forget who you were apart from Christ, what you would be without the Lord. It's the place where you get bluffed. Don't forget all the glorious gospel has done for you. And Paul doesn't. Verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In his former life, Paul hated Christ and he killed Christians. Now he says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. With Paul, God set a marvelous precedent. He found the meanest, vilest sinner on the block and he cut him down to size. On the Damascus off-ramp, Jesus knocked Paul off his high horse with a bright light. He reached as low as he could go. He turned the chief of sinners to prove that he can turn anyone. After Paul, there's now hope for us all. And Paul erupts in praise to God, verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal. Invisible to God who alone is wise. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why remain at your post? Why represent God well? Because the King is worthy. He is timeless. He is incorruptible. He is intangible. He is wise and all wonderful. Again, notice the pattern in Paul's letter. Here's Timothy's duty for here is God's glory God's honor is the reason Timothy should conduct his ministry honorably. And now in verse 18, he gives to Timothy a new challenge. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Notice Paul here couches Timothy's ministry in military terminology. The word translated charge speaks of a combat assignment, orders from headquarters. And remember, the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. There is a spiritual war going on. You know, we learn from these letters that Timothy was a bit timid. He loved Jesus, but when met with resistance, he tended to shrink back rather than rise up. He tended to cower rather than power. Here Paul supplies him a needed reminder Apparently, when God called Timothy to the ministry, He gave him some personal and predictive promises. And promises from God are powerful. They cast vision and they establish direction for our lives. They become anchors in the storm, reflectors in the dark, signs at the fork in the road. They fan the fire when you start to run out of steam. And here's my question for you this morning. What personal promises has God made to you? Have you forgotten them? You should do as Paul encourages Timothy. Don't shrink back from those promises. Don't conveniently forget them. Recall them and embrace them. Rise up in faith and use those old promises as new motivations to keep up the fight. Well, Timothy needs to hold fast. Verse 19 Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Boy, wars have casualties, including the spiritual battle that we fight. And Paul mentions two men who suffered spiritual shipwreck, Hymenaeus and Alexander denied the faith. And they got the right foot of Christian disfellowship. They got booted from the body. You know, the fastest way to learn to appreciate what you've been given is to be forced to live without it. Thankfully, only a few times in the 39 years I've been the pastor of this church have we had to remove folks from our fellowship. And when it had to happen, it was done biblically. 1 Timothy is going to talk a lot about membership in the body of Christ, its safeguards and its privileges. And there are times when, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, those safeguards and those privileges have to be removed to remind the person of the obligations that go with them. Tough love has a place in church life. Well, chapter 2 begins, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. In other words, it's our job to pray. I think Paul would be quite delighted to know that Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is having 30 days of prayer here at the beginning of the year. It's our job to pray. But for whom should we pray? Well, Paul tells us all men. And this has incredible implications. It means that no human being on earth is outside the influence of prayer. God wouldn't have told us to pray for all men if there were some men for whom our prayers had no effect. This is why it's wrong to write anybody off. No one is beyond the reach of our prayers. And notice the four types of prayer that he mentions. First is supplication. Supplication is that felt need, that open wound. It's a spontaneous heart cry brought to the healer himself. The next word, translated prayers, speaks of a reverence for God. This is more of a deliberate posturing before God. It's coming to God with a humble heart. Third, intercession is a request made on behalf of another person. And fourthly, giving of thanks should anyone ever approach God apart from a grateful heart. Thus, our prayer life should consist of all four. Cries of the heart, personal and frequent humblings before God, help for others, and of course, a stream of gratitude. He says, pray for all men, and especially kings and all who are in authority. And realize, as Paul pens these words The most evil tyrant the world has ever seen sits on the throne in Rome. Emperor Nero was the kissing cousin of Adolf Hitler. He made Stalin and Mao look like babysitters. Nero was a certifiable nut, but not a nut that couldn't be cracked if the church chose to pray. Now I don't care what you think about President Trump or President Obama before him. But biblically speaking, we shouldn't talk about him until we've prayed for him. And how should we pray for our authorities? Verse 2 outlines the church's political agenda, and it's not what you might think. Here's what we should expect from government, and quite frankly, it's not much. We should hope that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now realize, a government like ours that allows us the right to vote and enacts moral laws oftentimes reflecting Christian values that even affords churches tax breaks would have been beyond Paul's wildest imagination. His expectations would have been far more modest. He says, just be thankful when the government stays off your back. If you can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, in other words, be thankful you can live and worship without government interference. I think it's helpful for us all to remember that the goal of the church in society isn't the Christianization of institutions, but it's the evangelization of individuals. Let's pray for government to stay out of our lives and let us share our faith. And then verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, Our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Some people think God's salvation targets a select few. That's an idea foreign to the New Testament. It's the Marines that want a few good men. God desires all men to be saved. And He's appointed a middleman to broker our salvation. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In the midst of all his suffering, the Old Testament character Job, he felt the huge chasm that separated him from God. In Job 9 verse 33, he cried, Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job sought help to reach God. And this is the universal realization. Everyone knows that deep inside, they can't reach a holy God on their own. This is why people carry a rabbit's foot in their pocket. Or they consult mediums. Or they wear crystals. Or they pray the rosary. Or they hail Mary. They're reiterating the cry of Job. They need a mediator. They need some go-between, someone who can bridge the gap between God's love and their own lostness. Reminds me of Ernie. When the hospital attendant wheeled him back from the surgery, she inadvertently forgot to place the call button within his reach. Well, as he shook off the anesthesia, Ernie's pain became excruciating. He couldn't reach the button, and he couldn't walk over to get it. And so he found a mediator. Ernie picked up his cell phone, and he called the hospital switchboard. The operator connected him to the nurse's station on his floor and immediately help arrived. Well, if you want God's forgiveness, if you need God's healing, if you want to know God this morning, you need to find someone close to God who can solicit His help on your behalf. And neither the Buddha, nor Muhammad nor Moses, nor Mary, nor the saints, nor Oprah, can help you with this. There is one mediator between God and man, the Bible says, and only one, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And here's why Christ Jesus can broker our salvation, because He gave Himself a ransom for all. He came as a man to die in the place of all men. Jesus died not as a criminal or a victim or as a political pawn, but as a ransom. His sinless blood was the price required for our freedom. The man, Christ Jesus, is the ransom God paid for all our sins of all mankind. There's a theological system known as Calvinism, and one of its five points is a limited atonement. That Jesus died for just a select few. Yet Paul denies this theory. He tells us Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. Sadly, in the end, not everyone will be saved. But if they're not, they won't be able to blame God. Verse 4 tells us that God desires for all men to be saved. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for all men in all times. And now Paul points to Jesus Paul had been a Pharisee in love with the rules of legalism, the rules of Judaism. But he gave up religion when he realized that Jesus gave himself a ransom to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. You know, it was amazing. Paul was now preaching the faith that he once persecuted. And then he adds to his resume, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith, and truth. As a Jewish rabbi, Paul hated Gentiles. But Jesus won his heart with his love and now directed Paul's feet to the people he once hated. Now Paul has been talking about all men. But all men come in two varieties. Male and female. And now in the last half of chapter 2, Paul is going to instruct both men and women regarding the specific roles that each should play in church life. And we're going to find that gender matters to God. He begins in verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. Now, I'm sure Paul wants women to pray, too. But here he makes special mention of the men we're going to find that men are called to lead and good leaders must pray. Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Hey, stick a gun in my face and what happens to my hands? They shoot straight up. I surrender. And this is the attitude that men should possess Total surrender to the will and direction of God. Hey, if you men want to lead, you need to first bow to God. And then verse 9 is a word to the women. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness, with good works I like this paraphrase women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do that puts it in the positive real beauty is about virtue bubbling up on the inside of a woman not the adornments hanging on the outside and yet a Christian woman is responsible for how she dresses the idea regarding jewelry and hairstyle is to accentuate her inner beauty, not her outer appearance. I like the motto I saw on a t-shirt once. It said, modest is hottest. Rather than draw attention to her curves, a Christian woman should dress to highlight her spiritual beauty, her inner beauty. And then in verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And from here through chapter 3, Paul deals with the qualifications for church leaders. And they fall into three categories. Character, giftedness, and gender. Sadly, today's church stresses giftedness. And yet the only giftedness Paul mentions is apt to teach. We'll talk about that next week. His priority, though, is on character and gender. And Paul says of women... They should learn in silence with all submission. This reminds me of the senior pastor who was assigning sermon topics to his assistant. He says, I'll take Easter. You teach on women in the church. (laughs) Some pastors may try to avoid this topic, but to me, it is a litmus test. Is the church going to let culture or Scripture define its practices. To me, that's the issue. And when you look at the whole of God's Word, His will becomes clear. First, let me say, I don't believe that this verse is advocating a strict, absolute silence, that a sister can never speak up in church. For there are other passages in the New Testament where women participate vocally in church. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5 Ladies pray and prophesy in the church. Acts 21 verse 9, Philip has four virgin daughters who prophesy. In Titus chapter 2 verse 4, older women teach the younger women. They're commanded to do so. Rather than a prohibition on Christian women ever speaking in church, I believe the silence spoken of here is the attitude that flows from a submissive spirit. Paul adds in verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Here the issue is authority, and particularly the authority that comes with teaching God's word. Preaching in the public assembly is the job of men. And here's what a lot of ladies don't realize. If women want their men to rise up And lovingly lead in spiritual things. And I think most do. They have to show restraint. Wives. If you are always asserting. And doing the talking. And taking over. Your man is not going to fight for leadership. He's going to let you lead. And he's going fishing. (laughs) Men are taught from an early age. Never fight with girls. You ever gotten fight with a girl? It didn't turn out well for you, did it, guys? You always lose. If a woman is determined to lead, her man will let her. Here's the biblical mandate. In the church and in the home, the man is to lead and hold final authority while the woman is to support and follow the man. Now, in the eyes of God, men and women are equal in righteousness and worth and gifting. But they have different roles to play in the church and in the home. Some of the best Bible teachers I've known are women. I'm married to one. Kay Smith, my pastor's wife, was a better Bible teacher than her husband, Chuck. But men were not allowed into her class. In fact, they tried to attend and Kay ran them off. She understood the biblical roles. This word in verse 11 translated submission, it means to rank under. Everyone who's ever served in the military has met someone of a higher rank who had lesser skills and smarts than them. But due to military order, you submitted. You see, a bigger purpose was in play. And this is what God is asking from the females in the Christian fellowship. Allow your men to lead. Not because men are better or braver or brainier. In fact, it's usually just the opposite. Men are dense. That's why you women are so tempted to take the reins. Yet God has a bigger purpose in play. It's not as much logical as it is biblical. In the church and in the home... God wants the men to lead and the women to let them to follow so that the world can see a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. Men are called to assume the role of Jesus, to lovingly lead. Ladies are commanded to act like the church and willingly follow. God wants both sexes to complement each other, not compete with one another. And realize, God's issue with this role play is vital in the church, not necessarily in business or in government. Women shouldn't be pastors, but I have no issue with a woman as president or with a woman as a CEO or a boss. It's in the church and in the home that God is painting a picture through gender. So, When a wife submits to her husband, when a qualified female teacher yields to a male leader, it makes a radical statement. Folks perk up and ask why. It's an opportunity to share with them the gospel and the picture that God wants to paint in our relationships. Perhaps you've heard of the famous missionary Jim Elliott. Jim was martyred taking the gospel to the Aka Indians in the Amazon His wife Elizabeth was left in charge of the village and the Indians that Jim had won to Christ. But without Jim, they needed a pastor and the most qualified person among them to teach them was Elizabeth. But Elizabeth believed 1 Timothy chapter 2 that it granted authority in the church to the men, not to the women and she wanted to obey. So instead of teaching herself, Elizabeth gathered the men that Jim had felt had leadership potential, and she would work with them on Saturdays for the weekly sermon on Sundays. Here was her thinking, and I quote, They would get up and preach not a very good sermon. I could have done better, but I felt it was not my job to take over the church simply because I was competent to do it. It was my job to encourage these men so that they would become competent. Here was a woman secure enough in her own skin to see God's bigger purpose and to cooperate with Him. And please don't buy into the liberal dribble that these God-given roles were only applicable to the oriental culture of the first century and they don't apply to us today. Paul anticipates that argument in verses 13 and 14. The biblical roles of male and female transcend culture For Paul traces them all the way back to creation, to the very first couple. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was formed first. And like the oriental title of firstborn, this carried with it special privileges and authority and responsibility. God made Adam the head of the human race. The man received the headship. And yet how quickly both the man and the woman violated their roles. They both bucked God's will. Paul states, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Eve sinned when she usurped her husband's authority and negotiated with the devil. Adam, on the other hand, was weak and failed to lead. And because of their mutual rebellion, sin entered the world and all humanity has suffered since. And yet, in the wake of Eve's disaster, women were consoled by God with the promise of a coming Savior. Paul explains it in verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. A literal literal translation would be the childbearing. Not that giving birth to a baby is in any way uh, spiritually effectual. But it's the childbearing that... Uh, Accrues spiritually to us. The childbearing. In other words, a single specific childbirth. Here's God's promise. A woman got you into this mess and a woman is going to help you get out of this mess. Sin came into the world when Satan tempted Eve but salvation, ultimately the Messiah, will enter the world through a woman, a virgin named Mary. And it's through the childbearing The miracle of Jesus' incarnation that you and I can be saved. What's expected of us? Not just a one-time pledge. Verse 15 exhorts us to continue in faith. We need to persevere in our faith and in the fruits of living out that faith in love and holiness with self-control.